I am really looking forward to this one. The training world is full of technical editing courses that don't teach you the high-end creativity the viewers expect. Inside the Edit was created specifically to teach you every single creative skill you'll ever need to mesmerize your audience. Hello once again, dear friends, and welcome to episode six of Once Upon a Timeline, the official podcast of Inside the Edit. Thank you for joining me, Paddy Bird, for what is going to be a very special episode. Now, I'm just going to start off this week's show by asking you one simple question. What do X-Men First Class, Kick-Ass 1 and 2, Kingsman 1 and 2, and Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, and Fallout have in common? Only one thing. Master Film Editor... Eddie Hamilton. I've loved Eddie's work for many years now, and so I'm super excited that we've got one of Hollywood's most successful editors on the show this week. Also on this episode, we had loads of fantastic answers to last week's competition question, so make sure you stay tuned as... I'll be announcing the lucky filmmaker who's taking home one of Logic Keyboard's awesome pieces of kit. From humble beginnings on the south coast of England, Eddie has built a career ladder that has placed him at the very top of Hollywood. And listening to his unique story, his advice for young editors, and his overwhelming love for our art form was a real joy and a pleasure. This is part one in a two-part series, and in this episode, Eddie talks through how he rose from quick turnaround sports news programs and low-budget movies, all the way up to sharing an edit suite with Tom Cruise and Jerry Bruckheimer. He talks about his drive to succeed, his meticulous creative process, and how he cultivates relationships with some of Hollywood's biggest names. Eddie gives us a ton of wisdom, insight and inspiration in this episode, and I know you're going to really enjoy hearing from one of the masters of our industry. So sit down, strap in, and get ready for some creative editing magic. Eddie, thank you so much. You are the very first guest on Once Upon a Timeline, and it's a real privilege to have you here on the show. Thanks a lot, mate. It's an honor to be invited, Paddy. I'm a great fan of the podcast and on Inside the Edit. It's a truly extraordinary achievement, and I'm delighted to join you. I really am, genuinely. Oh, fantastic. I really appreciate those kind words, mate. That's really, really kind of you. So, um, Let's get started. I've got a ton of questions that I'm I'm desperate to ask you, but I know that our listeners would love to hear what you've got to say and all these kind of things. But first of all, just tell us, what are you working on at the moment? Well, for two years, so I started in July 2018, and it's now July 2020. I've been working on Top Gun Maverick. Uh, I spent a year living and working in Los Angeles, based at Jerry Bruckheimer's production office, and then a year back here in London, working with the team 
you know, fine tuning the edit and getting ready for test screenings and working on visual effects and music and getting it all put together into the film that it is now. We're really close to the finish line, which, you know, it, it's been a hell of a journey. The longest thing I've ever done, the hardest thing I've ever done by several orders of magnitude, I would say. And I'm really excited for people to see it on a big screen. <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, I cannot believe when I when I saw the trailer and I was like, oh, my God, I can't wait for this. This was such a seminal part of, you know, my growing up as a filmmaker. And I remember watching, you know, the original film and looking at all the cutting and all the angles. And I'm like, whoa, yeah. that is that is just yeah. phenomenal cutting yeah. right there. Yeah. Academy Award nominated. And I remember I saw it five times in the cinema in 1986 when it came out. <laughs> Um, it, it ran in cinemas for nearly a year, if you can remember that. Around the world, wow. it was just playing constantly, that movie. And I remember seeing it and just being completely spellbound and blown away by it. And I've seen it, obviously, many times since. There's probably half a million TVs showing Top Gun around the world right now. You know, <laughs> pe people, are watching, people are watching their Blu-rays or streaming it or DVDs or whatever. Uh, and I promise you that every single person on the Top Gun Maverick team felt the weight of expectation every day God, and I took bet. the responsibility very seriously. It was nice what you were saying about the weight of it. I mean, I think Top Gun, the original Top Gun, was one of those movies that are quite rare, certainly in certain parts of filmmaking, that I remember thinking with the editing there was a jump you know, you you see those movies sometimes. You're like, yeah. oh, you know, the bar has been lifted here. You know, I, I remember thinking that with um, the Bourne Ultimatum. I remember yeah, thinking Yeah, Bourne Ultimatum. Bourne Ultimatum Bourne. is one of my favourites. Yeah. I remember sitting in the cinema watching the Bourne Ultimatum thinking, there is not a frame of wasted time in no. this movie. Yeah. He's literally giving me every single tiny emotional beat that I need to, to create the emotion you know that he's after that chris rouse is trying to create you know it is perfection Absolutely and i remember perfection. thinking this is a slam dunk for best editing at the oscars and sure enough he got it it's so well deserved you know it, it, it is a monumental achievement and obviously he's done so many incredible movies chris rouse mm. but that one really was a masterclass in every kind of visual language and tempo and flashbacks and suspense and action and drama and i mean every everything's in there i i could watch it endlessly and still learn more and more about ways to approach kinetic action mm. which makes sense because the key is making sense and having allowing the audience just enough time to kind of be given two and two and make four constantly with these tiny shots you're constantly like building the geography of Waterloo Station and mm. the proximity of all the characters and what what Jason Bourne is doing, you know, with using all his cool spy tricks. And it, I mean, it's just astonishing that that movie, Bourne Ultimatum. If you haven't seen it, it's a slam dunk. You've got to watch it. I remember what yeah. I remember. I, I did very similar to what you did with Top Gun. That came out of the weekend. I think I watched it four or five times in the cinema. And I was actually on the middle of working on this big science documentary for I think it was National Geographic or yeah. Discovery or one of those one of the sciencey channels in the States and it was a co production with I don't know, Channel Four or BBC here in the UK. Yeah. 
And I came in, I, I got into the edit suite about 6 a.m. Monday morning, and I was like, Brrr. I started recutting all the sequences. And the director came in about nine with, with his coffee, with his latte. And I said, watch this. And he, <laughs> I played him all these sequences. Having watched the ball ultimatum like five times. He said, what on earth did you watch over the weekend? I was like, this is it, man. This is like the bar has been raised. This guy has just like blown it away. And wow. funny enough, so many of those sequences end up in the, in the, in the cut of the dock still. It was, I think it was a feature length dock and it still got in there. I was like, but it, it was amazing. It's like, you know, going back to that, it's like Top Gun, City of God. I mean, we could name. Oh, yeah. A, a City long of God, decent, absolutely. Yeah. You watch that title. It's like Man on Fire as well. The, Man, the, on the fire. Tony, Man on Fire is another yeah. one. I, I love Tony Scott. I, I, he, he, his visual style was so inspirational to a whole generation of people. And he mm. made it look incredibly easy. And it is so difficult. It is so difficult. You know, hats off to the to the man. I mean, really, his filmography is just astonishing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. really astonishing. You know, going back to basics, Eddie, like getting yeah. back to the start, you know, obviously, you know, you, you've worked on a very, very impressive list of, of movies over the last 10, 20 years. You know, you're working on Top Gun Maverick at the moment. Um, you know, there's the Mission Impossible movies. There's the Kingsman movies. You got the Kickass movies and and uh, X Men, just to name a few. I mean, it's it's unbelievable, mate. But that's the kind of that's the result of all the hard work. Where did it all start for you? I mean, there's two things I really like to know. Uh, yeah. You know, first of all, how did you get into editing? How did you get that break? But first of all, I guess what's really interesting to me, and I always love asking this about fellow pros, fellow cutters. What drew you to editing in the first place? It you know, draws a particular type of person into this art form. And I, yeah. I'm always interested in that. Well, it started when I was eight years old and I saw Star Wars on TV. It was shown on ITV and my dad had a Betamax video recorder. And I remember we recorded Star Wars and it started at 8 p.m. And it finished at, you know, half past 10 at night. And my bedtime was 9 p.m. So I missed the last hour and a half because I was sent to bed. Uh, but it was recording on the Betamax tape. And then the next morning I got up at 4am and I can remember this like it was yesterday. I was eight years old, like I said, went down at 4am and I put the tape in and I fast forwarded to where we got to and I turned the volume on the TV down really low and it was it was like an 18 inch colour TV. Uh, I turned the volume down really low and I watched the rest of Star Wars in the most uncinematic way possible. But I was sitting about... <laughs> I was sitting about six inches away from the television because I couldn't hear the sound if I was any further away, right? So I had it on a gigantic screen. Imagine, you know, I, I, my kids are now 14 and 11 and I, it's astonishing to think that I had this, you know, transformative experience at the age of eight, but it, that is exactly what it was. And then when the movie ended, I was in such a state of escapism euphoria that i remember seeing people's names coming up at the end right credits and thinking oh so there's human so people have done this right so and i hadn't seen many films like my parents weren't necessarily into movies at the cinema the sum total of my cinema going experience up to that point was literally snow white and the seven dwarfs and that was it <laughs> i think that was the only thing i've been taken to see at the cinema 
Um, Snow White to Star Wars. Wow, that's a big yeah, jump. Yeah, and then after Star Wars, I, I was like, then after that, I didn't see Empire at the cinema, but I, I begged my friend's parents to take me to Return of the Jedi. I saw Temple of Doom, didn't see Raiders in the cinema. And then I saw Review to a Kill. I remember the Bond movie sitting oh, wow, like yeah. fifth, fifth, in the Bognor Regis Odeon, sitting like six rows back in this quite small screen behind a very large guy. I remember having to lean to the right to see the movie for the entire <laughs> runtime because there was a guy sat in front of me. But anyway, though, though I, I basically fell in love with, with the power of film storytelling at the age of eight because of the intoxicating effect it had on me. And I read as much as I could about filmmaking and listened to film music and watched any documentary that came on BBC Two about making films because there was nothing, there was no way, there weren't behind the scenes documentaries on DVDs or anything. And, and, and I would record them on the TV and watch them over and over again. And I remember there was a documentary that on ITV once about the making of Return of the Jedi. And I saw, um, I saw them edit together a, a very early previs of the speeder bike chase using Star Wars figures and, and a tiny little lipstick video camera. And I remember thinking, oh my God, that's how they do this. They, they, they plan it on a little video camera and then they go out and they film it for real. And, and to, to jump over a lot of time, I'll come back to it. But I remember when I was on X-Men First Class, we did almost exactly the same thing with models of the X-Jet and we had a lipstick camera and we planned out the shots for some of the final battle doing that. And now, and for Kingsman and stuff, a lot of that is pre-vised and stunt-vised and it's the same. So everything I was, I was learning when I was eight or nine or 10, all the music I listened to and everything that I read and every, I studied visual effects and I, I you know, I, I, I had various different filmmaking prologue was, no, what was it called? Starlog was one of them, Cine Fantastic, all these magazines that I would get to read about makeup and visual effects and miniatures and matte paintings and, and stop motion animation and all this stuff. And then when I was about 17, I remember getting two VHS machines together and taking <laughs> the soundtrack to Rocky Four right the training month the training montage music to rocky four off a vinyl well. record you know vince decola if you're listening hats off to you sir for writing that amazing music and i took my copy of aliens the director's cut and i edited a montage of aliens to the training music to rocky four <laughs> and that was the first thing that i ever edited on two vhs machines and i wow. i remember i remember doing it and like 12 hours flew by. I remember sitting and I was just sitting in my bedroom, figuring out how to kind of press pause and stop and play and record on these two VHS machines. And, and like 12 hours flew by and suddenly it was 8 p.m. in the evening. And I was like, wow, that was cool. And I've done this montage and I was looking back and it was two minutes long. And I was like, this is so exciting and so cool. And so from the age of about 17, I thought, Obviously, I thought I was going to be Steven Spielberg or George Lucas, like we all did. You know, we all thought we would write and direct Raiders of the Lost Ark or Star Wars. But I discovered that my skills, my, my kind of uh, love of film storytelling and kind of nerdy interest in computers and technology led me down a path towards editing because it is the perfect combination of storytelling and technology. So if you like computers and you like storytelling, 
it's you know it, it, and you kind of geek out on av and like images and sound effects and music and visual effects and all that stuff it's a perfect job plus i'm a bit of an introvert and i don't mind sitting on my own in a room working for hours at a time you know on the tiny details of the edit and the broad canvas of the story and then collaborating with producers and directors and writers to kind of refine it and and get it uh, and improve it and then start showing it to audiences and, and and responding to them but um i when i left school i actually did a psychology degree at university college london there weren't many film schools that did undergraduate courses in 1991 when i was starting but i went to university college london and i i made i basically spent about eight hours a day doing student film and tv and the rest of the time doing the bare minimum to get a psychology degree and then I tried to get into the National Film School, the Royal College of Art, the Northern School of Film and Television. I was quite young. I guess I was 22, 23, which is quite young to be going to one of those postgraduate courses. And I didn't get into any of them. I always got to like the last three or the last five. And then there would be three spots to study editing or two spots. You know, I would never get in. Uh, I was unashamedly commercial because every, everyone would say to me, what's your favourite movie? And I would just say Star Wars because it was. And the kind of classic 80s action movies like Top Gun and Die Hard and Back to mm. the Future and Aliens and Robocop, all those movies were the, uh, you know, Thelma and Louise, uh, you know, those were the movies that um, that really inspired me and fired me up. Lethal Weapon was another one. I remember Lethal Weapon, Lethal Weapon 2. I was obsessed with those movies. Mm. And, and um, they, th those were what I was excited about. And I... When I saw Vittorio De Sica's Bicycle Thieves, I understood its significance in Italy and I understood the political significance in the time it was made, Battle of Algiers, etc., etc., all those kind of film school classics. But I was never fired up by them. You know, they never they never made me want to punch the air and 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 get and just feel like I was being transported into this other world, you know. Uh, which is what I felt cinema was for me personally. You know, it's not for everybody, mm. but for me, it's about it's about wonderful escapism and adventure and excitement and suspense and um, all that all that kind of stuff is what I love in movies. You know, and I'm quite I wear it on my sleeve. And when you meet like minded people who also love movies, you can just talk forever. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know because because you're all fans and it's extraordinary now getting to collaborate with a titan like jerry bruckheimer who has made so many classic films over the last 30 years uh you know and and getting to ask him any question that i want about beverly hills cop or flash dance or or <laughs> the rock or you know crimson tide or you know any of these extraordinary movies which i saw endlessly you know armageddon i have such a soft spot for armageddon it's not everyone's cup of tea but i absolutely love that movie i i think it's it, it it's just an amazing piece of entertainment you know and um what happened was i didn't get into film school i worked for about a year temping in various banks police stations and stuff and paid doing page layout design 
miserable. And I remember there was one day where I went to the shop at lunchtime and I bought this gigantic bag of chocolate chip cookies and I'd eaten them all by 3.30 in the afternoon. And I remember thinking, I'm miserable and I've got to, I, I have to try and find a way into the film industry or the TV industry. So I, I basically handed in my notice and gave myself a month to get a job as a runner in a post facility. And then I, end, I managed to do that. That was in 95, 95, I think. And then, um, so that was when Avid Media Composer had been out. They'd been around for like three years. Mm. And the first online media composers were coming out using this thing called AVR 75. You may remember that resolution. AVR 75 and, um, and AVR 77, wasn't the AVR 77, yeah, yeah, there we go. Old school. So, so 77 <laughs> was a very, very bandwidth hungry codec, but 75 was just about good enough for most broadcasters. Anyway, um, and I, I learned, I, 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 I joined this company and I, I worked my way up from a runner to a kind of editor assistant within about three months because I, wow. I literally, I worked incredibly hard and I, every manual they gave me, I read it overnight and then asked for another one the next day because I was so hungry to learn about how to do this professionally. But what I ended up doing was editing sports television news programs. That's an interesting question, Eddie. I'm sorry to cut you off there, but what's really interesting is because I know a lot of our listeners will go, what was that, you know, you're talking about going from edit assistant. How did you get that first break? It's quite simple. Someone was sick one day <laughs> and they didn't have an editor and a client was coming in 15 minutes and they couldn't get anyone. And I'll say, I'll, I said, I'll do it. And they were like, are you sure? I said, no problem. I promise you I'll take care of this and it'll be done as if you'd paid somebody a lot of money because you know freelance editors back then were getting it were getting paid a lot of money compared yeah. to what a runner was getting yeah uh, you know huge massive amounts more money and and I remember thinking but I can do this because I've been practicing on my own like I used to take a week off and sit in a in a spare edit suite editing uh, like a holiday video or something just to have some footage to practice on you know uh, or I'd take some video that I'd shot on my holidays with my friends and I'd just make a video. I'd make a montage and, and, and get try and just hone my, my technical skills and my online skills, my offline skills, my sound mixing skills, all the stuff that you need to do to kind of be professional. And, and then one day a guy was sick and it was an offline and it was really quick and it was like two or three minutes long and he, he had some footage and it was digitized and he had an idea of what he wanted and I just calmly went and did it and and the guy was thrilled because I did it really quickly and professionally and you know I, I mean I was I guess I was 24 I don't know I was quite young uh and I looked young you know and the guy was like who are you but I said oh, honestly give me a chance I'm going to do this and and you'll be really happy with it and and then what happened was this sports tv news company sort of bought out like a bunch of the edit suites to do a daily news program and they were look there was such a constant turnover of editors because it was very high pressure editing it was like you had to start at 4 p.m and you had to edit like a half hour news program it partly it was it was repackaging stuff from reuters partly it was new stuff adding mm. voiceovers adding transitions bumpers graphics and then you would have to transmit it at midnight so you had like eight hours to edit this half hour show and and online it and wow. add voice you know all this stuff so it was very high pressure and there were packages so it wasn't like 
you know, we were having to edit stuff and add voiceovers and, and mix it and stuff. But a lot of the graphics we built in advance. So we were just like dropping this stuff in and then we would transmit it at midnight. And I did that for, I don't know, eight months or something. So I became really fast. A bit like how when you were doing Big Brother, you became really fast because yeah. you were just under the under pressure to crank out material. You just had to get through it because it was going on air. Um I should go back to how I got my first break on a movie, I suppose, because I've, I've skipped over that. I really wanted to do movies because obviously you can hear that movies are the love of my life. And I knew that I didn't want to end up doing sport television, you know. And so I, I again, I, I gave myself a deadline and I said, right, I'm going to I'm going to quit in, in and I'm going to try and find a job on a very low budget movie. And I did. I managed to. You know, I reached out and I, I called people and I emailed people uh, and I wrote letters to people. And I tried to get a job as an assistant editor on some movies, but I didn't get any luck. But I managed to get a job editing a very low budget movie. And I did a few of those. I did four or five of those where I was barely earning enough to pay the rent. And I would actually sometimes I'd work for free on them and I'd, I'd edit promos for the Paramount Comedy Channel, you know, two or three days a week to pay the bills as a freelance editor and then I would use the other five days a week to edit these other movies for free and they, they weren't very good and no one's necessarily really seen them because it's really 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 hard to make good films really hard you don't really appreciate it until you've tried it and then you realize you know what a genius uh you know really great directors are but but the the long and the short of it is that Matthew Vaughan was producing a movie called Mean Machine, which had Vinnie Jones playing football in prison. It was 2001, mm. and I'd done five or six. No, I've I've done no. That was my ninth movie, I think. So I'd done eight very low budget movies, all with budgets of some of them budgets of like fifteen thousand pounds, some of them two hundred thousand pounds, some of them a million pounds. But Mean Machine had a six million pound budget, which was a big deal for me. And uh, they were looking for an editor and I knew somebody who had a connection with Matthew. And I said to my friend, would you phone up your friend and tell Matthew that there's this young editor who will sleep on the floor of the edit suite to work on his movie? And uh, <laughs> somehow the word got through to him and I went to meet him on a Saturday morning and I said, look, he said, yeah, we're under the gun here. We're, we're, we've got salary to pay one editor, but actually we're going to cut the salary in two and give it to two editors because we've got to, we've got to release this movie on, on Boxing Day and it's like um, it's August or something. So it was very short amount of time. They were still filming. He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to let you work on the movie for two weeks, cut as much as you can in two weeks and then I'll come and watch what you've done and tell you if you've got the job. And so I started at the beginning and I cut about 40 minutes of the film. And, and the other weeks. editor... In two weeks, yeah. I did about 40 minutes. There were a couple of really difficult montages in there as well. But I just I just knuckled down, you know. And this is my entire future at stake mm. for this few weeks. I bet you didn't weeks. sleep. You, did, you this just is, didn't this, sleep. Yeah, this is, this is one of those times <laughs> where you're like, I will not fail. Yeah. I will not let myself fail. This I, is I my have, moment. This is my moment. I was acting purely on instinct. Didn't really know. I, I mean, I, I, I'd done like, you know, eight low budget movies before. So I had a, 
I've had a lot of experience of, of trying to refine edits and get them better. But even now, I'm like 48 years old and I'm still learning every day. You know, I'm still improving as a storyteller every day. But anyway, I did this and, I, and, I, and he watched this 40 minutes. There was a very nerve wracking lunchtime where he came in and I left the room and I pressed play and I left the room. And then 40 minutes later, he came out and he went, that's really good. Great, you got the job. Just crack on, get, get through the rest of it. I was like, wow. He said, there's work to do, but you've clearly got, I can see that you're, you've, there's good energy in the cutting and there's good rhythms. And I enjoyed watching it. You know, it was entertaining. It, you know, it drew me in. And, um, and so, uh, you know, I, I finished working on that movie and that, that, that was the first, it was, it, I think it, it was even released by Paramount Pictures, I think. So, so ultimately it wasn't like, a dip in it was a very low budget studio movie but that was really the introduction and then Matthew clearly has been somebody who's had an enormous impact on my career in terms of you know working on Kick-Ass and X-Men First Class and and really before Kick-Ass I did I did one of the Resident Evil movies Resident Evil Apocalypse it was called which mm. was again another big break for me that was like a 45 million dollar budget it was 2003 I did that I, and I worked entirely in Toronto for a year with just me and one assistant. And now I have like five assistants, you know, on these big movies, but one assistant. And, and that was it was an enormous pressure cooker of a lot of footage coming in and trying to build something and, you know, working with a bit more responsibility and then slowly working my way up. But it wasn't really until Kick-Ass that the, the, the quality of the movies started to kind of take a significant step up. I'm working on X-Men First Class, which I'm super proud of. Um, and, and then Kingsman, which was such a challenge editorially in so many ways. And then obviously when I finished Kingsman The Secret Service, I was asked to go and meet Chris McQuarrie to do Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. And I thought you know, I've never done a movie of that scale and why would Paramount hire me to do it? But again, I went in there and I was very enthusiastic, clearly a massive fan of cinema. And I think they, the enthusiasm that I showed, uh, you know, encouraged them. And I, I started assembling the movie and again, I said to myself, I'm, I'm not going to fail. This is a massive opportunity. I'm going to deliver a really tight, assembly of this film um we still refined it massively afterwards because but it, but it uh, was the same kind of um audition process would you say that, yeah yeah uh, it was yeah. it was and and in a way i didn't really have any i didn't have much input from anybody because they were filming they were flat out filming and i was assembling as much as i could um and what's interesting is the second half of the assembly was much more successful than the first half um, there was a lot more dialogue scenes in the second half and the dialogue scenes were really singing and a lot of the um, the suspense because it requires there was so much footage for some of it and I I had barely started assembling some of it you know um, so it, I still had a lot of work to do but anyway the end result is I didn't get fired I thought every day the phone would ring and I would get fired off that movie um, but I didn't and and I became very good friends with Chris McQuarrie again I'm super proud of the end result you know but that was that's kind of that's kind of my journey and and I, I often think to myself it was 20 years from when I from my first low budget movie 
no, from, from when I started, actually, no, 20 years from when I started uh, in as an edit trainee, you know, doing those sports documentary mm. programs to when I did Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. You know, so it's quite a long journey to get there. There's occasions when I'm working on these movies where a producer will walk into me about halfway through the shoot and he'll go, hey, um, can we build like a sizzle reel to show the crew as a morale booster? Uh, how long would it take you to do that? And normally I'm like, like maybe tomorrow afternoon I'll have something for you. And he's like, great, okay, that sounds great. I'll, I'll come tomorrow, tomorrow lunchtime and I'll, I'll take a look at what you're doing. And then it's like, holy cow, I've got half of the shoot's dailies to go through and I've got to build a sizzle reel of cool stuff to show the producer by lunchtime tomorrow. And then they want to show it to the crew because they, they're on a set with like gigantic video walls or something, so they can project this, you know, it's just convenient to do it. And the crew have all been working for two or three months and they're all exhausted and they want a morale booster. And suddenly you have this deadline imposed on you. And I'm imposing deadlines on myself up to that point of like, I will get through all the footage every day by the end of the day, you know, but, but this is a deadline which is, you know, do not let this A-list producer down. Plus, I'm really proud of what I do and I want to impress people. You know, you, you want people to go, wow, that's great. You don't want people to, to look at what you do and go, huh, you know. And so by lunchtime the next day, I'll have something. Nowadays, what I do is actually, I'm thinking about this through the first half of the shoot. So anytime I see a cool shot, I will, bu I will just bung it in a sequence. So I've got like a constant selects roll of cool stuff that I'm building up every day. Yeah. And also, interesting lines of dialogue that I think are titillating for a sizzle reel, you know, mm. that, that might kind of sow the seeds of the plot or something, or just... That's, that's good trailer material right there. Yeah, yeah, 100%, all that stuff. I'll just kind of put it in a bin as I'm going, and then I'll start, like, on my way home of an evening, I'll be thinking, I wonder how I could build something. So when the request comes in, I'm a bit ahead of it. Do you see what I mean? I'm not starting completely cold. I've already got an idea. I may even have some music cues picked out from other movies or from earlier iterations of the same franchise, whatever. And and then I'll build this thing. And then and then the last one I did, they the producer didn't actually want to see it. He just said, we're going to show it to the crew at five o'clock, put it on, because he trusted me. And that was great. And the one before, it was like he watched it at lunch and then he just gave me two notes and he said, right, we're showing it to the crew at three o'clock. And um, and that's the power of deadlines. We You will all discover that in your careers, the power of a deadline. Yeah. You know, I started reading the book Deep Work that you recommended, which is a, so far, I'm about halfway through. It's awesome. I love oh, it. Oh, it's an and amazing it will, book, isn't it? Cal it, Newport. It will, it's like... Yeah, it will, it will definitely improve my efficiency which i'm i have to say i'm pretty good at at the moment like i do shut the door and i i don't look at my phone and i don't have distractions and all this mm. but i feel like it will improve my creativity and and how much i can create in a shorter amount of time it'll be mm. more efficient i think but um but it is it's like deadlines are just so so important and it's it's amazing if you look back through any pro editor's career there's there's usually as you say, you you with um, that that sports program where you had to do an enormous amount of content in a short amount of time. Yeah. Um, and I had Big Brother. I had you know friends and colleagues who I've worked with, and they've always had that kind of trial by fire. Yeah. 
you know, extreme editing and the things that it does to your brain, you know, I, I started look I started getting all nerdy on it and started looking at the neurological things which I was talking yeah. about in that previous episode. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think yeah. it's fascinating. And you have this I literally came out, I felt that I was a, a different kind of editor. I mean it's I love that you know what it always reminds me of? One of my favourite nineties movies we're gonna talk you know, you go back talking about nineties movies, get shorty. The, yeah. you know, the um that kind of Hollywood gangster movie with John Travolta and he, yeah. he just says yeah. this line I just thought I, and th this sums up a lot of my career and your career and a lot of people's careers in editing sometimes you do your best work with a gun to your head <laughs> yeah, yeah a and I was bit, like yeah. yeah when you got that deadline you got yeah. you got you got death or victory that's it it's yeah. like I have yeah. to produce and then what yeah. happens when you go through that painful experience is actually you blossom and you bloom and yeah. you you your brain has a way of uh, automating creativity like it couldn't do before yeah yeah and it's it's you know the, the chris mccrory who directs mission impossible the last two missions that i did he has this phrase which is pressure is a privilege and we Beautiful, find yeah. ourselves under pressure uh, daily on mission impossible because there's never enough time there's never enough light um, things go wrong. You're constantly having to rethink, uh, you know, ways of approaching scenes to try and compress the amount of coverage that you can get. And when you have a screening deadline or you or you know that Tom Cruise is going to walk through the door in 40 minutes and you've got to show him something, you really focus. And when you're out of your comfort zone, that's when you grow. And quite often I will throw my assistants something which I know is quite hard for them to do to see how they manage it. Like one of the things we end up doing quite a lot early, early in, in kind of prep on these big movies is there will be previous sequences and the previous house will send us an edit, which is a complete edit, and they will send us all the individual shots as well. And I always want, and the individual shots have handles, and I always want the individual shots overcut. Uh, and it's a slightly a manual process, um, depending on how they've, what software they've used to generate the shots and all that stuff but i want them to be i want all the individual shots to be overcut on the sequence and sometimes it's only 30 seconds or 45 seconds so it's not a lot of work mm. but it might be 10 or 20 shots and i'll say to one of my junior assistants right overcut this and i'm going to come and see it in 10 minutes and they're like what do you mean 10 minutes and i'm like no 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 you've got it's it's you know got 30 seconds of shot to try and overcut it and so they they feel the heat Mm. And I'm I'm giving them a chance to kind of experience that emotion and mm. and push through and 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 then, and I always say to them, do not show me unless you've triple checked it because I don't you cannot give me anything with mistakes in it. You know, it's like our reputation in editorial relies entirely on on accurate information coming in footage and ex frame accurate information leaving mm. the edit as well. Mm. And so your reputation, as well as being somebody who is nice to work with and creative and fast, is also about being technically accurate. And when you give somebody a QuickTime file, they just relax in the knowledge that you have already checked it twice and you know it's right and there is sound on it and it's, it's got like the correct burn-ins and the correct watermarks and all that stuff, which is so easy to screw up if, if you rush and you you forget to like enable a video layer or something boring and like that, or the sound is deactivated when you're exporting or something. But 
I always tell my assistants, check twice. And if you're too tired, get one of the other members of the team to check it because we're all, we've all got each other's back and we're, we're all helping each other out because uh, that's what we do in a team, you know. So I, I give them this exercise and they get to experience a bit of pressure, you know, which is, which is a healthy thing. But until you're really in the hot seat, you know, with actors and producers and director and a director in the room, it, 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 it and that's one thing I did learn actually, um, when I was working on X-Men First Class, I was working with Lee Smith. Now Matthew Vaughan was directing that film and I'd worked with him on Kick-Ass, but he was given the opportunity to direct X-Men and I, uh, they, there's no way they would ever give me the chance to edit X-Men on my own, nor would I necessarily want it because it's a gigantic budget film and mm. um, an enormous amount of responsibility for an editor. And so Lee Smith was hired as the lead editor and Matthew said, would you mind allowing Eddie to get a co-editing credit with you just so he can learn how you work on these big films? And he will share the workload, but, you know, you'll be the lead editor. And Lee was gracious enough to say, yeah, sure, that's fine. You know, I like kick, I like Kick-Ass. Eddie's done a great job on that film. And, it, yeah, we can share the load. You know, that it was... X-Men First Class, they started filming and nine months later there was a movie in the cinemas, which is incredibly fast wow. for a movie of that scale. Wow. And actually the shoot was about seven months of the nine months. So we, uh, with with breaks here and there for prep, but it, we only had about eight weeks after the shoot to get the movie into cinemas. You know, and we were cutting as we were going and we were recutting, we were recutting, but it was very, very, and we were turning over visual effects and doing sound and music, but it, it was, it was a pressure cooker of an experience and, uh, and I couldn't have done it on my own and Lee had just done Inception, you know, and he was going on to do uh, The Dark Knight Rises after X-Men, so and Inception clearly is a masterpiece mm. and, um, and he was Academy Award nominated in my opinion, should have won for Inception because it's an extraordinary achievement in editing. Really extraordinary. Oh, it's unbelievable. Um, possibly more so than Dunkirk, which is also an incredible achievement in editing, but he, he should have won for both, to be honest. But I got to see how Lee Smith interacted with the head of the film studio. You know, 20th Century Fox, at the time, the head of the film studio was Tom Rothman. And I got to see how he created this sense of calm and creativity and positivity and how confident he was in expressing his opinions about why he had chosen to cut to certain things and why he left quite a lot of footage on the cutting room floor even in his first assemblies because he's like that's never going to be in the film he was always right he was always mm -hmm. right and that just comes from a lot of experience of having a long assembly and then knowing on these movies what ends up naturally on the cutting room floor because every shot has to be awesome in a movie like that and any shot that is like only 80% or even maybe only 90% is going to end up on the cutting room floor quite often he would he would he would just put in the 100% shot straight away and I'd be like but there's you've cut out a lot of stuff Lee and he would go yeah it will never be in the film uh, and I was like, yeah, and and maybe I, I would occasionally go back. I would always be the one going through the footage because there was a lot of footage to go through. And he would 
he would sketch through a scene and move on to the next one because there was more dailies coming in. And he would say, Eddie, why don't you go through all the footage and see if there's any gems that I've missed? And occasionally I would come up with, say, five or six shots and he would go, three of those are awesome and I'm putting those in. And I wouldn't have found them without your help because with so much to do. But it's only three shots that you found, you know, from six hours of dailies. Do you see what I mean? So um, the film would improve, but it, it, he had done like 95% of the heavy lifting incredibly quickly. Do you see what I mean? And so, and that is because he was 10 years older than me. I was like in my early 40s. He was in his early 50s. And that extra 10 years of experience had given him like, he could fast forward to the end result in his head, which is, I think, what experience gives you. Right. I'm sure you would agree with that. It's like you can look at some footage. Absolutely. And instantly go, I can see where this is going. Now, I still have a thoroughness gene, which does not allow me to take shortcuts unless I'm really under the gun. But, you know, if I'm working on Mission Impossible and I have 70 hours of Tom Cruise flying a helicopter, risking his life flying a helicopter, doing very dangerous stuff, um, there is some of the footage, which is him taking off and flying to somewhere very dangerous. But I still want to watch it because he was practicing what he was going to do in the helicopter. And he would be talking to me as he was doing it, saying, this is what I'm going to do when I get there, Eddie. So I would I would listen to what his commentary and then I would know when he got in and he was doing the flying, I'd know what he was doing. And I will watch 70 hours of footage. And in the film, it's, I think, nine nine minutes or maybe it's seven minutes 50 seconds or it's it's of the order like there's about nine minutes of helicopter footage in the movie whittled down from 70 hours you know but i i did i did not take shortcuts and i i watched it all and what i would do is i would actually for that sequence i would watch it in the car on the way to the cutting room and on the way back because i they were very paramount pictures were very kind to offer me a driver so i'd load these dailies onto my laptop have them on an encrypted drive. And I would spend an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening going through helicopter footage, starting to kind of sub it down and break it out and make selects. And eventually after about four months, I got through it all. <laughs> but that is literally how long it took. I remember wow. the day, I remember the day when I got to the end of watching all the helicopter footage after four months and thinking, wow, that was exciting. And um, the studio had asked for a sizzle reel, an IMAX sizzle reel of the best helicopter footage. And after I'd been through the 70 hours, I was able to present them with a four minute reel of the the cream of the best footage, knowing it was the best because I'd not I'd watched it all, you know. And so when they saw it, it was it really was like distilled awesomeness, you know, and um, and and I and I was very confident about that. So uh, it was worth it, you know, and that's kind of what you your responsibility is on these movies, you know, or what I feel my responsibility is, you know. And, and I think that sense of pride and the constant enthusiasm and excitement, you know, literally pinching myself every day. I'm working on these movies, never taking it for granted, getting up every morning with a positive attitude getting in, I normally start around 7.30 in the morning um, and being excited to be there every day. Like you say, you know, in your outside the edit video segments that you do, it's it's about being positive and being calm and being somebody that 
that a director wants to collaborate with. And, you know, I have a lava lamp in my room. One of the things, one of the tricks that I do is I put sunset gels on the windows to create permanent magic hour in my room, right? <laughs> there um, you go. You heard it so, first here, ladies and gentlemen. You heard it first. Eddie Hamilton's absolute trick. I, I love it. That's great. I, I, I have this, I put this stuff on the windows that makes them slightly opaque so that people can't see in. So no one can see my screen, but it, but I also have this sunset gel. So you get this incredible warm glow in the room the whole time. So when a director walks in, they feel like they're walking into a warm environment, you know, a safe environment. And, and the way that I have my room set up is I have a standing desk set situated about a third of the way back from the wall. So a third of the way into the room, never up against the wall because I want, the speakers to be behind me. So I have the left center and right speakers about a halfway between the wall and my desk. So there is room for the air to circulate around the speakers. And then the same at the back of the room where the surround speakers are. So I have the director's sort of couch sofa about a third of the way forward from the back of the room. So the middle third of the room is the kind of collaborative zone. So I'm standing at the desk. They're sitting at a sofa. We have a coffee table in between a lava lamp, you know, some fruit on the table. And, and the other thing that I do is I have a, an iMac at the side and I take, I've, I've got my team to export um, frame grabs from other movies in the series or similar movies. And I just have them on a constant screensaver going in the background as kind of reminders of the heritage of what we're doing, you know. So on, on Top Gun, I would have this, basically it would be one still from every shot from Top Gun, the first movie. And I would have them constantly going on a loop to remind me of the genius of that movie and, and Tony Scott and how, uh, you know, how we mustn't screw this up, you know. And on, on Mission Impossible, I have frame grabs from all the other Mission movies and they're constantly going in the background um, so that we can see, you know, the composition of the shots and, and how they, uh, the lens choices and the, and, and, and the energy in the frame and, and all that kind of stuff just to kind of inspire us constantly, you know, and it makes something fun for the director to look at when you are noodling on the timeline, you know, and they're waiting for you to, to get something done. That's it for part one of our conversation with Hollywood film editor Eddie Hamilton. What a cool dude, really inspiring. Uh, really humble and totally in love with the craft. I love listening to him as his energy is just, it's, it's totally contagious. You cannot miss part two of Eddie's interview next week. It's full of absolute gold as well. We're also going to have a new competition and Eddie is actually going to choose the winner who will walk away with an annual subscription to Creative Cloud, courtesy of our friends over at Adobe. I don't want to give it away and tell you what the competition is, but let's just say it's based around his movies. So if you do want to do some prep for next week, go and start re-watching some of the many blockbusters he's cut. We're not going to do a Q&A this week as Eddie has given us so much great creative insight, but please do still email any questions you have 
to podcast at insidetheedit.com and I'll be sure to get them onto a future episode. So, who won last week's competition? It was a chance to take your pick from any of the fantastic editing keyboards from the always awesome Logic Keyboards. And the question was, what is the best edited documentary and why? Now, we've had some great answers from the Inside the Edit community. Here's a few of them. Stan from Amsterdam in the Netherlands said it was Netflix's recent Last Dance, the 10-part doc about Michael Jordan and the success of the Chicago Bulls basketball team in the 90s. Oh my God, I was hooked, says Stan. I'm not even a big basketball fan. I especially love the structure of the edit, which didn't follow a chronological timeline. It felt like episode one was 1985 and 1992, and then episode two was 1986 and 1991, and so on. Even though it felt like they were cutting from one year to another, it never felt out of place. Solid gold. Stan, I totally agree with you. I must confess, I recently binge-watched it over a whole weekend, and I was totally captivated from start to finish. I thought the structure was really intelligent. The montages were absolutely stunning as well. Um, All that archive to play with. All round, it was a fantastic piece of work, so thanks for putting that forward, Stan. Mark from Switzerland emailed and said his favourite was An Inconvenient Truth because they told a story around the main character, the planet. It didn't feel like another Al Gore presentation. It also won the Best Documentary Oscar as well as the Best Edited Documentary Film Prize at the American Cinema Editor Awards. Jay Cassidy is one of my favorite film editors, which is why I loved The Inconvenient Truth. Great shout, Mark. Thanks for sending that in. Yet another fantastic choice. Bodo from Munich in Germany says it's the documentary Above and Below, edited by Kaya Inan. It's a very unconventional documentary which shapes the protagonists really well. Great images and great rhythmical pacing. Bodo, I totally agree with you. If you haven't seen this doc, you've got to take a look. I thought it was really compelling and really, really original. And I loved the way it was cut. But this week's winner is Charles in Brighton in the UK. He says his favourite is Searching for Sugar Man. The way in which the story is revealed to the viewer, says Charles, to portray the mystery and musical talent of Rodriguez is the reason I chose this. It is slowly drip-fed to the audience, raising more and more questions while we are also placed into the mindset of the fans that are in pursuit of him. This is emphasised with the music montages of Rodriguez's songs, while also being balanced with the mysterious and more drawn-out scenes. The use of micro-pacing within the scenes and macro-pacing over the whole film help in portraying the fascinating, eventful and not-so-eventful later life of Rodriguez. What a great answer, Charles. I couldn't agree more. I remember watching it and being on the edge of my seat, really, with the way they structured the film and slowly laid the breadcrumbs of the narrative out in such an intelligent way. 
Quite rightly, it deserved the Oscar that year for Best Documentary. Well done, Charles. You win one of Logic Keyboard's fantastic pieces of kit. Don't forget, if you'd like to take your creative editing skills to the next level, head over to InsideTheEdit.com and sign up for any one of our memberships. We teach you all of the high-end editing skills that are not found in any online course, any training manual, or any film school degree. Come and join thousands of filmmakers around the world who have become powerful creative editors. Big shout out to the amazing team at Universal Production Music who supplied all the fantastic music for this week's episode. I spent way too much time this week going through their catalogue and auditioning action movie scores for Eddie's appearance on the show. As always, the tracks I've used can be found on the episode 6 page over at podcast.insidetheedit.com. So go and check them out if you think they're good for what you're cutting right now. I'm sorry to say that our final master's degree taster has already sold out, so apologies if you didn't get the chance to take part. You can still apply for the actual degree, which starts at the end of September, by going over to the master's degree page at insidetheedit.com and talk through any questions you have with a member of the Ravensbourne University team. Now, if you did miss out but really do like the idea of live Inside the Edit training, well, it's a bit of a secret, but I will have an exciting announcement to make around that very, very soon. Stay tuned over the next couple of weeks for that. And lastly, this is a completely free resource. Please do help me keep it going by sharing it, tweeting it, Uh, reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or giving it a rating so we can keep it alive and get tons of free content out there for our fantastic editing community. Okay, dear friends, that's a wrap. I'll see you on the next episode of Once Upon a Timeline. Stay cool, stay safe, and stay cutting. Stay cutting.